Well, I feel we hardly need a sermon, really, after that marvellous reading, don't you? Gibson, thank you, brother. Very good indeed. But uh, anyway, let's have our Bibles open, and uh, please have the white bulletin open in front of you uh, with the outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, I'm going to ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the tremendous privilege of an open Bible. But uh, when we read these things in the book of Judges, uh, we find that it is a world that appears to be so far removed from our own. And so we need your help. Lord, please banish the fears and the cares and the distractions of the past week from our mind and open your precious word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more common misunderstandings in the church today, I think, is the idea that uh, the only people who can do any ministry are professionals. Uh, The idea, I think, is if you're going to do anything useful for God, uh, you've got to have a degree in theology, and there must be no stain on your character or your background. So only qualified professionals need apply. Everybody else in church, well, they're merely a spectator. Now this morning, I want to put that idea under the spotlight of Judges 4 and 5, and I want us to see that that idea is profoundly wrong. Uh, If you want a text to get us started, it would be Judges chapter 5 and verse 2. And it says... When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Now this morning, uh, in the interest of time, we did only read chapter 4, but chapters 4 and 5 belong together because both chapters are about the same event. The event was so significant that the account or the report in chapter 4 is followed by a song in chapter 5. It's the only place where you find this in the book of Judges, and that, I think, is a pretty big clue that this is something special. Because when we put these two chapters together, what we have is a picture of salvation. So it starts in chapter 4 with cruel oppression. Uh, You'll notice that's Israel's situation in chapter 4, verse 3. And then the whole thing ends in chapter 5 and verse 31 with peace or rest. Now, I think that pattern is becoming increasingly familiar to us as we work through the book of Judges. But our passage this morning gives us fresh understanding about God's work of salvation in every age. Uh, The story is told in three steps, which I'm going to cover fairly quickly, because I want us to spend most of our time this morning looking at the surprising people that God used to save his people then, in order that we can see what God might be saying to you and me this morning. So what are the three steps in salvation in this story. Well, firstly, there is the mess. 
And I think we can all agree, can't we, that sin does indeed bring mess. Uh, It brings it into our own lives and into our society, just as it did in the ancient world. And that's what we find in chapter 4, verse 1. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan. Uh, As we go on, we discover that the Canaanite forces were under the command of a man called Sisera. And in verse 3, we're told that they have 900 iron chariots. Uh, Iron chariots in those days were the latest military hardware, and the Canaanites had 900 of them. By contrast, the Israelites have almost nothing. So if you look ahead to chapter 5 and verse 8, sorry, a little bit of page turning to begin with, chapter 5 verse 8, we're told not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So Israel were totally outgunned. And the Canaanite regime was exceptionally cruel. So uh, in chapter 5 and verse 30, when Sisera's family are wondering where he's got to, uh, one of the ladies speculates and says, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a girl or two for each man? But actually the, the Hebrew is rather more blunt. It says a womb or two for each man. In other words, the Canaanites were raping women, and seizing goods and plunder. And that was absolutely typical of how they behaved, and it went on for 20 years. Now, will you notice the particular emphasis on the identity of the oppressor? Because although Caesarea catches our attention as the commander of the army, he is in fact a servant of Jabin, the king of Canaan, chapter 4, verse 1. And if you look right at the end of chapter 4, verse 23, um, we read this. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed, and then the Hebrew says it again, until they destroyed Jabin, the Canaanite king. So he's given that title three times in two verses. Now, why the emphasis? Well, you see, the Israelites had entered Canaan as the agents of God's judgment. Uh, We've already discovered, haven't we, that the Canaanites were evil on a scale that you and I can scarcely imagine. In fact, they were so wicked that God did an unusual thing which was to pass a sentence of destruction on that entire culture. The problem was Israel did not obey. They began well, but as time went on, they compromised. They didn't drive out the Canaanites, and they ended up living among them. And they began to worship their gods, and in the end, they became just like them. So friends, by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, and I assure you we will get there, 
What we find at the end of the book is Israel caught up in homosexual gang rape and heterosexual gang rape. And I think that gives us a very graphic and rather unpleasant picture of what it meant to be a Canaanite. And the point, you see, is that the Israelites became Canaanites because they disobeyed God. The Canaanites were the people God had commanded Israel to destroy, but you see, our story is conquest in reverse. The Israelites have actually been conquered by the Canaanites. Now, you see, when you stand back from that, what it's saying is that Satan is taking God's plans and turning them upside down, which is, of course, what Satan is always trying to do. Satan is always trying to reverse the advance of God's kingdom, both in the church and in your life and in mine. So, Judges is not ancient history, is it? This is what Satan is trying to do in our lives and in every local church. Now, of course, uh, God's power is sufficient to keep us. But friends, can I say that it is alarming when the people of God reach the point where they decide that the word of God is too demanding too unreasonable and too narrow. Now, of course, in our generation, the Bible does not tell us to go out and exterminate Canaanites. But, friends, it does speak plainly on moral issues. It tells us what marriage is. It talks about homosexual behaviour. It talks about biblical manhood and womanhood. It talks about the sanctity of life. It talks about hell. It talks about the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. And these things, you see, are becoming unacceptable amongst increasing numbers of people who nevertheless call themselves Christians. So, friends, can you see that when Christians get like that, they're actually no different from the ancient Canaanites? And uh, behind all this, of course, lurks the devil and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So all of a sudden, you see, um, the world of judges is not so far removed from our situation as you might think. And here, Israel allowed themselves to be conquered by the Canaanites. And the result was that they were cruelly oppressed by the regime of the king of Canaan. But then more briefly, at stage two in the salvation of Israel was the cry. Now we looked at this last week and we're not going to go over it again, but please will you notice that according to chapter 4 verse 3, it was 20 years before anybody said, we're in the most terrible mess, we need to pray. In the end, they actually did cry out to the Lord, but it took them 20 years to get around to doing it. Now, why did it take so long? Well, the text doesn't say explicitly, 
But you see, verse 3 is the pivot in these two chapters. Because after verse 3, everything changes. Israel prayed, and from that moment, God stepped in to rescue them. And I want to suggest to us this morning that it's reminding us that Satan strangles prayer. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, then the most important thing that you have ever done in your life is to pray. When you became a Christian, you see, what happened was you heard the gospel, you responded in prayer, and God saved you. If you hadn't prayed, you wouldn't be a Christian. So it is the most important thing you've ever done. And it's the most important thing you ever do now that you are a Christian. And that, of course, is why the devil strangles prayer. He strangles prayer in churches. He strangles prayer in our own lives by persuading Christians to think that, well, prayer doesn't achieve anything very much. Well, eventually Israel did pray. And then everything began to change. That's step two. Then step three in this story of salvation is the power. And in a moment we're going to be looking at the uh, agents that God used and what a surprising group of people they were. And yet, in the salvation and deliverance of Israel, there was only one key player. So in chapter 4 and verse 6, Deborah summons Barak and uh, look at what she says to him. She says, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I, that is the Lord, will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River. And I, the Lord, will give him into your hands. And you've got the same emphasis again in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And what actually happened? Well, verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. Now friends, seven times in chapter 4, God is named as the deliverer. And uh, when we get into chapter 5, which I hope you'll read for yourselves later, the Lord is the focus all the way through. Barak might have been the guy on the ground, but everything that happened to ensure the victory was the Lord's work. And chapter 5 makes that point no less than 12 times. Now can I say, friends, that when we are blessed by the ministry of those who serve us at church, uh, whether it's in the music, uh, whether it's in prayer or the leading of services or preaching, the appropriate response is praise the Lord. It is not, praise the pastor. 
Very important to get that clear. But now having said that, let's look at the surprise in this episode, which is the agents God uses to save his people, and they are not the people we would expect. It's a tremendous word of reassurance for us. And in each case, we're going to look at the lesson we're being taught. Lesson number one is trust God's word. Now, Deborah, I think, is a surprise. Uh, She's introduced to us without warning in verse 4. And the first thing we're told about her is that she is a prophetess. Uh, She's also the wife of Lapidoth, about whom we know absolutely nothing. But the text goes on to say that Deborah was leading, but I think a better translation would be judging Israel at that time. So Deborah was one of the judges, and that is a surprise because all the rest were blokes. On top of that, being a prophetess was very unusual, Uh, In the Old Testament, there are only three prophetesses that we know by name. Uh, There's Miriam, there's Huldah, and there's Deborah. Now, some commentators go on to say that the fact that a woman was judging Israel means that at that time, all the men of Israel were spineless wimps. Now, there may be something in that, I don't know. But uh, can we see the text doesn't actually say that, and it's not the main issue. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 7, Deborah describes herself as a mother in Israel. That doesn't mean she had lots of children of her own, I don't think. I think the idea is that the Israelites were rather like squabbling children. And they brought their squabbles to Deborah at her headquarters under her favourite palm tree, where, like every good mother, she restored peace and harmony. Now, here's the interesting thing. When the rest of the Bible refers back to this particular event, which it does in 1 Samuel 12 and Hebrews 11, these passages do not talk about Deborah. They talk about Barak. And the reason for that is that Deborah isn't trying to be a man and put on the armour and, as it were, lead the army. She is not trying to to take charge of that. And yet she does play an extremely crucial role. Because her role is to declare God's word to Barak. And that's what she does. She keeps coming back to this man and saying, this is what the Lord says. Look at verse 6 again. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. So you see, Deborah doesn't just have a a bright idea of her own. She's passing on the word from the Lord. And she does it again in verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So she plays an absolutely key role in passing on the word of God to Barak. And by doing that, 
she mobilises him for action. Now I wonder if you can see how significant this was. You see, what was the cause of Israel's suffering and misery? Well, you see, they defied the word of the Lord. They hadn't destroyed the Canaanites. And when you defy the word of God, the only way out of the mess that follows is to obey the word of the Lord. And that's what Deborah is encouraging Barak to do. Now, none of us is going to bring fresh revelation from God in the way that she did. But she is an example to all of us. She is full of confidence in the Lord and in his word. And her great contribution was that she got other people to take God's word seriously. Now, can I say that at some level, all of us have a responsibility to bring God's word of encouragement, uh, to remind one another of what God has said, and to encourage each other to trust it. You see, think about this with me. What is Satan's temptation? Well, you may say that it takes many different forms, and of course it does. But what was the first temptation back in the garden, and uh, the one that's been with us ever since? I'll tell you what it was. It was, did God really say? The root of all sin was in that question, challenging the truth of God's word. And Satan is still at that today. And I want to say this morning that there is a ministry for anybody who will follow in Deborah's footsteps and say, this is what the Lord says, let's do it. Alec Mateer was a a very great Christian leader who trained uh, scores of pastors and Bible teachers. Um, And he is considered by many to be the world authority on Isaiah. And uh, Alec Mateer tells a rather lovely story of his childhood. Uh, When he was about six or seven, he was sent to Granny for a couple of weeks. But for various reasons, uh, the couple of weeks became about seven years. And so Granny became an extremely important part of his life. And Alec Mateer's Granny loved the Lord and she loved his word and she taught this little boy to trust it, to take it as it is written and to take it as God's word to him. And Alec Mateer says that years later, uh, he was a student at a rather liberal theological college. He was being taught by some um, very clever people. But you see, these liberal scholars were saying that the Bible isn't quite what it seems. Uh, It isn't the word of God. It's actually a human book. And uh, Alec Mateer says that as he sat in those lectures, uh, it came down to a simple choice. Uh, Who was he going to trust? Uh, Was he going to trust these liberal scholars, very brilliant men, or Granny? Well, Alec Mateer chose Granny. And uh, how many people, how many people, 
have been so grateful for the choice that he made without ever realising the debt we owe to Granny. So praise God for anybody who gets you to trust God's word. Lesson number one. Lesson number two. Obey anyway. Now it's not hard to imagine, is it, that after 20 years of Canaanite rule, the Israelites were discouraged and intimidated. 20 years is a very long time, isn't it? And uh, occupation by a foreign power is always a depressing business. The uh, Nazi occupation of Germany, uh, by Germany of Europe, destroyed families, Um, it wiped out a great deal of European culture, and many, many people gave up all hope of ever being delivered. And Nazi occupation of Europe, well, it only lasted 10 years. But this is 20 years. And I suspect that Barack was not unusual, I suspect he was fairly typical of many men who had kind of had the stuffing knocked out of them by the long years of enemy occupation. And now Deborah comes along with both a command and a promise from God. What do you do with that? Look at verse 7. She says, go, there's the command from God, and I will lure Sisera with his chariots and his troops and give him into your hands. There's the promise. And Barak's reply in verse 8, I think, is very revealing. He says, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now that is an extraordinary response, isn't it? Because you see, what he's saying is, I'm not going to obey God unless you come with me. And Deborah says, okay, I will go with you, but because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now let's think about this for a moment. What is a true hero, do you think? Uh, Is a true hero someone who isn't put off by danger? You can't scare them. Uh, Somebody who's happy to take every risk in the book. Or is a true hero somebody who by nature would run a mile, but doesn't? Well, Barak seems to be that second kind of hero. He's not a natural risk-taker. And yet, he's listed in Hebrews 11, verse 32, as one of the heroes of the faith. And I think we need to spend a moment or two thinking about why Hebrews says that. Well, I've been thinking about it this week, and I think it's something like this. In verse 6, Barak is told to take 10,000 men to Mount Tabor. Now the point is that on the steep slopes of a mountain his 10,000 men are going to be pretty safe from the Canaanite chariots. I don't know whether you've ever taken a chariot up on Table Mountain but if you were to do so you would pretty soon discover that you, you can't do much with them. They're not much use to you. But did you notice in the text where God promised to give Barak the victory? This is fascinating. Verse 7 I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops, to the Kishon River in the valley and give him into your hands. 
So you see at the right moment Barak would bring the men down off the mountain to the valley by the river which is precisely where Sisera would want to fight the battle. Level ground. And yet that's where God says he's going to give Barak the victory. From a military standpoint it is insanity for Barak to leave the safety of Mount Tabor and come into the valley. It made absolutely no sense except that God said he should. And you see, what Barak does is he makes a choice to obey God anyway. So come with me to verse 14 because I think verse 14 is where we see Barak's face most clearly revealed. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. Now, humanly speaking, they were going down the mountain to their deaths. And yet, you see, this is not a calculation of advantage. It is a calculation of obedience. And my dear friends, at some point, all of us in this room face situations where we've got to make that calculation. And we could make a calculation of obvious personal advantage, and that would take our lives in one direction. But on the other hand, there is a calculation of obedience to God, and that usually takes us in a different direction altogether. And the great temptation is always to go with the advantage rather than the obedience, isn't it? We all know that. It may be that some of us here this morning are wrestling with a challenge and we're unsure whether to go the way of advantage, personal advantage, or the way of obedience to God. And you see, what we learn from this tremendous text from Barak is that God honours the calculation of obedience. I am going to keep my marriage vows. I am going to tell the truth. I am going to hold on to the gospel. So what actually happened uh, to Barak when he, he made his calculation of obedience? Well, I think it's clearest in chapter 5 in the song. So have a look with me at the second half of verse 4 in chapter 5. It says there, The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. In other words, there was a massive deluge. And there's a tremendous irony here in the story because the Canaanites worship the Baals, And the Baals were supposed to be the storm gods. They were supposed to control the weather. But here the God of Israel, at just the right moment, delivers a perfect storm. And so look ahead to verse 21. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river. The river Kishon. Now most of the time the River Kishon, I'm told, is a dry riverbed. There's no water in it. But when Barak and his men came down off the mountain, left the safety behind them, there was a huge storm 
and the Kishon became a raging torrent. The whole valley was flooded. And now, instead of being an invincible strike force, the Canaanite chariots become 900 death traps. Their wheels get stuck in the mud. And now the Israelites come along with their, what did they have? Well, pitchforks, I suppose. Uh, A couple of knives, maybe. And they slaughter them. Verse 16. All the troops of Caesarea fell by the sword. Not a man was left. So you see, Israel won the most remarkable victory. And all because one anxious man obeyed God. That's the way for us. It's the calculation of obedience. Obey God anyway. And then lesson number three, well, it's a great lesson this, isn't it? Even you. This is where we meet uh, Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. And if anybody has had a bad press amongst the commentators, it is Jael. Uh, She's variously been described as a betrayer, vicious, ferocious, callous, treacherous. Uh, She's criticised for breaking two of the commandments because she both kills and lies. And she also breaks all of the rules of Middle Eastern hospitality. Now, you see, if you think that is the right assessment, then I guess JL should probably apologise for having bumped off Caesarea. Can I suggest, however, that that is an example of us imposing our culture on the text? Because I honestly don't think that you can read the text carefully and come to those conclusions at all. And I say that with some hesitation as Dr. Seckham is in the room. So, can we just for a second backtrack and try and understand a little bit more about JL? Because the first thing that we need to notice is that she is in a very compromising situation. She's married to this man, Heber the Kenite, and we're told something about him in verse 11 of chapter 4. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. You see, the Kenites, uh, Moses' in-laws, they had been added to Israel. They, They had joined Israel. And they were so much a part of Israel that they had been allocated land in the south of Judah. So they were a discrete group of Gentiles that had become worshippers of the God of Israel. But there's a rather sinister note in verse 11. Because verse 11 says that Heber had left the other Kenites. And in the original, the word left is a very strong word, which means that he abandoned them. He severed his ties with them and with the land of his inheritance. Now, friends, that was an extremely serious offence. Because under Old Testament law, the land that was allocated to your tribe was a sacred inheritance given by God. 
And the tribes of Israel were commanded to cling to the land God had given to them. But Heber didn't do that. Instead, he moved to Kadesh, which is in the far north of the country, which actually was the area where the Canaanites were most dominant. And so it's hardly surprising, is it, in verse 17, that there were friendly relations between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and Heber the Kenite. You see, he not only abandoned his inheritance, but it also abandoned the people of God and allied himself with the enemies of God. And in that sense, he is a spiritual ancestor of Judas. And Jael is his wife. So Jael, you see, is married to a traitor to God's cause and she's bound by circumstances to the enemies of God. Now, some people feel they're in situations where they're so compromised they don't actually believe that God could ever use them. Maybe you have a husband or a wife who is not a believer or you have children who've rejected the faith or you're a single parent or you're divorced and something desperately tragic has happened in your life and you don't think God will ever use you. And it's not hard to imagine, is it, that Jael might well have seen herself like that. And even if she didn't see herself like that, she was limited by the unwritten rules of the culture. She had no influence whatsoever on her husband's decisions. In matters of politics, or war, or alliances, she had no voice. No, her sphere was her tent. And in chapter 5, verse 24, she is described as a tent-dwelling woman. So you see, her area of competence was, was cooking and washing and children and hospitality, and uh, she was obviously rather useful with a mallet and a tent peg. Because, you see, in that culture, it was the woman's job to put up the tent. Now, friend, you might look at the things that you do in normal everyday life, and you might think, just as J.L. probably did, that you haven't got much to offer God. And to make matters worse, you look around and you see other people who appear to have the most tremendous gifts and boundless energy, and you end up asking, can God ever use me? And J.L. has an answer, and that answer is yes. Um, even if the way that God uses you is a trifle different to the way that he used J.L. You see, notice this in the text, this is terribly important. The text says that the Lord handed Sisera over to Jael. This is not an accident. Verse 9 says that the Lord had determined to hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, when we read that, you probably thought it was Deborah. But it isn't. The Lord had already determined to hand him over to Jael. 
And so here we have this exhausted military commander stumbling into Jael's camp. Uh, We're not too sure where Heber was at the time, but Jael was there. And we need to remember when we read this that Sisera was an evil man. He's been an oppressor of the people of God for decades. And according to the testimony even of his own family, he's used to rape and pillage and terror. And as a Canaanite commander, he is under God's sentence of death. So you see, in the eyes of Almighty God, this man is a prince of darkness. And that's why, you see, Jael's actions are celebrated in the poetry of verse 5. Come and look at it with me, verse 24. Chapter 5, verse 24, are we all looking at it? What does it say? It says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. So, not a treacherous, throat-slitting evil woman. And now look at the kind of slow-motion action replay of what she did in verse 26 and following. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Is that enough? No, it's not. At her feet he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Can you see the text is celebrating what she did? You can't for one moment think that you're supposed to read that and say, oh dear, how terrible. Now here is someone God blesses. Now friends, listen to this. Isn't it interesting that the weakest character in the story strikes the most crucial blow of all. Is that not remarkable? And the Bible's verdict on her actions is spelled out in verse 31 of chapter 5, which says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. In other words, may all God's enemies perish like Caesarea. You see, the destruction of Caesarea is a foretaste of what God is going to do when he conquers all his enemies. And if you and I take offence at a, a deliverance that is so physical and so messy, we need to remember that we live in a physical world where sin is physical and messy. And so the salvation that you and I need is not just polite and airy-fairy. We need a salvation that is nitty-gritty, down-to-earth destruction of Satan and Satan's agents. And friends, that is why God's means of salvation is as gruesome and physical and messy as a man lacerated 
beyond belief, bleeding, nailed, and dying slowly on a cross. And so you see when Caesarea lay dead with a tent peg through his head, don't you think a shiver went down the devil's spine? Don't you think he saw a foretaste of a greater victory through one born of woman who would crush the serpent's head and cast the devil and all his agents into the lake of burning sulphur, which, my dear friends, is a real place for real beings, all the enemies of God. Friends, you see, Scripture... Scripture celebrates God's righteous judgments, not because they're gruesome, but because only when judgment on evil is real can we hope for a world where no evil is possible. So in this marvellous story, there is encouragement for all of us this morning. God is at work to save He responds to people who pray. His word is true. And he doesn't wait until the church is full of absolutely fantastic Christians who've been to all the right colleges. No, he he stoops to use the most ordinary and unlikely people. And if God can use Deborah, a woman in a man's world, or Barak, a discouraged and rather weak man, or someone as desperately compromised as Jael, well, I'm pretty confident he can use you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We want to thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you do answer our prayers. Make us people of daily believing prayer. Thank you that your power is more than sufficient to deliver us from evil. And thank you for showing us that you use the most surprising people, people like us, to accomplish your kingdom purpose. So Lord, stir the hearts of everyone here this morning to respond to your call. Wake us up, Lord, that this may be a church where every single person joyfully plays their part in your great work. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.